0: Hi, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor in chief of the New Books Network, and I just wanted to tell you that the following interview originally appeared on Counterpoint with Jonathan Judakin, which is broadcast on WKNO FM. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Counterpoint. I'm Jonathan Judakin. From her first book on the Jewish philosopher Franz Rosenzweig, Leora Botnitsky has been heralded as a rising star in contemporary Jewish thought and the philosophy of religion. Botnitsky is currently a professor of Jewish studies and chair of the Department of Religion at Princeton University. She'll be giving a public lecture in Blunt Auditorium at Rhodes College on Monday, September 30th at 6 p.m. about her latest book, How Judaism Became a Religion which has now firmly ensconced her as a leading voice in her fields of study. In the midst of what's been a busy September season of Jewish Holy Days, I'm happy to have her on CounterPoint. Leora Botnitsky, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Leora, the title of this new book, How Judaism Became a Religion, is really provocative, since many might wonder when hearing it, hasn't Judaism always been a religion? But you're exploring modern Jewish thought from the angle of what scholars call the social construction of religion. Explain what this means and why the invention of religion as a modern category was both a problem but also created new possibilities for Jews.
1: The basic premise of the book is that this idea of the modern idea of religion is distinctly modern. A number of months ago, I found in an editorial in the New York Times a quotation that I think actually sums up what this modern idea is, and and then I'll say something about it. So this is a quotation from an editorial, quote, Religion and politics, though often spoken about in the same breath, are, of course, fundamentally different. Politics is, by definition, a public activity. Though religion contains large public components, it is at its core a personal affair. It is the relationship we have with ourselves or, as the British philosopher Alfred North Whitehead said, what the individual does with his solitariness, end quote. So I think that captures what is a pretty common view, at least in the United States, of religion. Religion is a private affair. It's something individual. Maybe it's a bunch of individuals getting together, but nonetheless, it's rooted in the individual, and it's distinct from politics. That's a very modern idea that arises only with the modern nation state. With the rise of the modern nation state, collective activity and political activity come to be associated only with the state. Religion comes to be understood as non political. Now, if you just read the newspapers, you can see that it's an idea we have, but it doesn't really reflect reality in a lot of ways. So if you think about, for instance, even in American public policy debates about abortion and gay marriage and how religious ideas do seem to filter into the political arena, for better or for worse, we see, of course, France's now infamous headscarf affair, questions about what's going on in Egypt with the Muslim Brotherhood and democracy, And, of course, in the Jewish context, disputes about the meaning of Jewishness of the state of Israel. So this idea that religion, on the one hand, is private and then politics is where there's collective life, it doesn't really match up very well in reality, not just in Jewish thought, but also more generally in the world today. I think something that's helpful is maybe thinking about the term religion and also about the Hebrew word for religion, dot, So today, if you want to say someone's religious, you say Dati in Hebrew. That's also a very modern usage. This usage didn't exist in a pre-modern context. So there's a lot of scholarship on the modern idea of religion and how the word
0: evolved. Part of what you say is that, in fact, it's a modern Protestant idea, that it reduces religion to faith or to a set of beliefs, which doesn't really work with Judaism, which is mostly a religion of practice and of law.
1: Absolutely. It's a particularly Protestant idea, an idea that develops along with the modern nation-state. Now, how, how is it that we come to this idea of religion? Historically speaking, the Latin term that our word religion derives from was historically associated with ritual performance, The term religion, as we sort of use it today, begins to emerge in the 16th century with colonialists, and it's used to refer to non-Christian religions. But by the 18th century, and this is really the key point, religion came mostly to be defined in terms of personal faith uh, or belief. One word about the term dot in this context. Dot, in terms of its pre-modern usage, didn't mean religion in the sense of faith. It referred to law, and not even specifically to Jewish laws. Sometimes to Jewish laws, sometimes to just laws as such. Similar to the term religion, the word "dot" came to refer to faith. Really, in, say, the 17th century, it began in Hebrew to be used more for faith and to be contrasted with law. So this is the backdrop, is this idea that religion is about faith and belief. So how does this relate to Judaism historically? Well, of course, Judaism, historically speaking, was always religious, but it wasn't a religion. Judaism, historically speaking, was a religion, a nationality, and a culture all wrapped up in one. And just a few facts about pre-modern Judaism. Before Jews became citizens of modern nation states, Jewish communities existed only as communities by virtue of some kind of external authority. So a king, for instance, would give various rights to a Jewish community to exist somewhere, and the Jewish community would perform particular services, such as collecting taxes. That's something that's well known. But what this also meant was that from an internal perspective, the Jewish community or different Jewish communities were really self-ruling and really had a huge amount of autonomy. So this meant that Jewish law was not just religious, it was religious, but it also was a way in which daily life was regulated. It meant that Jews, even though they lived in separate Jewish communities scattered throughout the world, understood themselves as one united people, as Klal Yisrael, the collective people of Israel. And from a theological point of view, Jews believed that when the days of the Messiah would come, that these different Jewish communities scattered throughout the world would be re- united, brought together in the land of Israel. So Judaism in a pre-modern context was a religion, it was a nationality, and it was a culture. It was all these things at once. To be a Jew meant to be defined as a Jew from a political point of view, from a religious point of view, what we nowadays would call from a cultural point of view, from a national point of view. And with the modern nation state and the emergence of the idea that religion is just about belief, Judaism and Jewish thinkers had to try and fit themselves into a particular box that it didn't quite fit into. Because, as you said, Jonathan, historically speaking, the Jewish tradition has not been mainly focused on faith or individual faith, but largely on practice and on law. That doesn't mean people didn't have faith. It just means that that faith couldn't be separated from practice and that practice couldn't be separated from a public dimension. And we have that really broken apart in the modern period. And it's in the modern period generally, not just for Jews, but for everyone that we get this distinction between these different spheres of life. If you think about a modern university, it's reflected in that. So economics is separate from morality, is separate from philosophy, is separate from history, the kind of fragmentation of modern life. And Jews and Jewish thinkers had to figure out how to fit Judaism into this category of
0: religion, into which it didn't quite fit. So let's look more deeply at how you explore that over the course of modern Jewish thought because the hook of your book is that this is precisely what modern Jewish thinkers debated and, and thought about. The first major figure that you write about is Moses Mendelssohn. And you say, quote, he invents the modern idea that Judaism is a religion. Tell us a little bit about Mendelssohn and how his great work, Jerusalem, founds the idea of Judaism as a religion.
1: Moses Mendelssohn is a very important modern Jewish thinker, in many ways the most important modern Jewish thinker, because even when subsequent thinkers reject Mendelssohn, it's still within his framework. So he really sets the questions. So who was Moses Mendelssohn? Well, Moses Mendelssohn lived from 1729 to 1786. He was born in what was then Prussia. He walked to Berlin, where there was the center of the Enlightenment activity. A number of things about Mendelssohn to give you a sense of of what the condition of Jews was like in those days. Mendelssohn, we know, came through a particular gate in Berlin, the Rosenthaler Gate, and we know that he came through this gate because this was a gate that Jews and cattle could pass through. He did, in 1763, receive a permanent visa to stay in Berlin. Because he was doing useful things, but at the same time, this personal visa, if Mendelssohn died, his family would have to leave. So, this is just to give you a sense of the precarious situation that Mendelssohn found himself in. Now, Mendelssohn was a great student of philosophy and a number of other subjects, and he was very unusual, or at least that's how he was thought about as very unusual. He was known as the Socrates of Berlin. And people really couldn't believe it. How is it that this Jew is so talented at philosophy and other German cultural endeavors? And how is it that he can move between Jewish circles and Enlightenment circles at the same time? He was really considered a cultural phenomenon, not just a major philosophical figure. I'll mention one thing about his being a major philosophical figure is in his day, he won an important philosophy essay contest. And I like to tell students that the person who won the second prize was Immanuel Kant. So in his day, Mendelssohn was one of the great German and European philosophers. But this got Mendelssohn into some trouble because people started to wonder, if Mendelssohn's so smart, which he appears to be, then why doesn't he convert to Christianity? And he was challenged publicly a number of times to either refute Christianity, to show it wasn't true, or to convert And he was put in a very difficult position because, as I mentioned, the rights of Jews were very precarious. And Mendelssohn wasn't just taking his own fate into his own hands. But at this time, Jews were subject to collective punishment. So if Mendelssohn messed up in some way, it wasn't just that he and his family would suffer, but the Jewish community in Berlin and perhaps elsewhere would suffer too. So what happened? Well, first, Mendelssohn had a nervous breakdown. And then in 1783, he published really the foundational text, I think, of modern Jewish thought, his book, Jerusalem. What does he argue in Jerusalem? If you look at the title Jerusalem and its subtitle, which is on Judaism and power, we can kind of get what the argument is. Basically, what Mendelssohn is saying is that Judaism has nothing to do with political power. Judaism is a religion. The first half of Jerusalem is devoted to an argument about the separation of church and state. It's an argument that if people in the United States read it today, it, it sounds just completely obvious. But of course, it wasn't obvious at that time. The second section of the book deals specifically with Judaism. And that's where Mendelssohn wants to argue that Judaism has nothing to do with politics as the state is, but rather Judaism is what he called a revealed legislation. It's only for Jews. It's a one-time historical event. The Jews were given the laws of Moses at Sinai. Only Jews need to follow Jewish law. Therefore, it's nobody else needs to worry about it. And at the same time, he wants to argue these laws are completely rational. They're subject to critiques of reason They can't conflict with reason in any way. So Mendelssohn doesn't disprove Christianity or prove the truth of Judaism, but what he does is he argues that Judaism doesn't really have a stake in these questions about truth. It doesn't affect any enlightened person. It, It doesn't require anyone to believe in anything irrational. This is one of his claims. And of course, the subtext there is Christianity does require people to believe in something irrational the trinity other such articles of faith so judaism doesn't conflict with enlightened reason and at the same time everybody who's not jewish doesn't have to be jewish This is how Mendelssohn presents this argument, and it's an argument to which all subsequent Jewish thinkers will respond. But the main claim, and this is the invented claim, that then becomes commonplace for so many of us today, is that Judaism's a religion. It doesn't have anything to do with the state. It's something completely separate. But the tension there is that on the one hand he argues Judaism is a religion like that, but it's not a religion as a matter of faith. It's a religion of practice. And once Jews actually had equal rights, once they actually became citizens of modern nation states, the question then became, why should Jews continue to follow these laws? It became an internal question. For Mendelssohn, it's not yet an internal question because he just assumes, because this is how things had always been, The Jews are Jews, and they don't choose who they'll be. Rather, Jews are obliged to follow
0: the law. So in part, Mendelssohn became this crucially important founding figure because on the one hand, he's articulating a notion of separation of church and state and arguing that akin to the Lutherans in Germany that were like him, religion ought to be a matter of one's private convictions. But on the other hand, he's also adhering still to the idea of Jewish law. If he founds the idea of Judaism as a religion, you open the second part of the book, which explores a number of thinkers who call that notion into question with this fascinating figure, Solomon Maimon, who is roughly a contemporary of Mendelssohn's. And you write, if Mendelssohn is the first modern Jewish thinker, perhaps Maimon is the first modern Jewish individual. Like your claim about how Judaism is a religion, this sounds at first like such a crazy assertion. Explain exactly what you mean by this. In what sense was Solomon Maimon the first modern Jewish individual?
1: There were Jewish individuals before Solomon Maimon. But what I mean by that is that Maimon lives his life as a Jew and as an individual. And this is unprecedented. Now, some might argue that Baruch Spinoza, uh, who lived in the 17th century and was very famously excommunicated from the Jewish community in Amsterdam, that he was the first Jewish individual. Why? Because Spinoza was excommunicated, as I said, and he didn't convert to Christianity. So he lived his life as an individual and, in fact, was very threatened that different communities, not just the Jewish community, but also various Calvinist communities, were very threatened by Spinoza's existence. But I would argue it's not Spinoza. Why? Because Spinoza didn't really understand himself as fundamentally a Jew. What's interesting about Maimon is that he lives a life separate from any Jewish community, but he understands himself fundamentally as a Jew. He understands himself as forming his life, creating his own life, but separate from the Jewish community. He most famously published an autobiography in 1792, and most of what we know about Maimon is from that autobiography, and he's a very interesting figure. He got married at the age of 11. He was a father at the age of 14. He's a Talmudic genius. He also studies Hasidism, but then he abandons his wife and children in his mid-20s, and he wants to study philosophy. After a long period of trying, he's given entry into Berlin, and he meets Mendelssohn. He talks about how everybody laughs at him because he doesn't speak German very well, and he's dirty. He doesn't dress nicely, and apparently he doesn't groom himself very well. And so the autobiography is very funny, among other things. It's all about how, in many ways, silly Maiman is, and he paints a picture of himself as this kind of silly clown in many ways. But what's interesting is there's a subtext there as well. Because part of what Maimon's doing in that autobiography is showing how all these people who claim to be enlightened are actually not enlightened. They're quite prejudiced. They're quite prejudiced against him, and they're quite prejudiced against Judaism. So there are lots of parts of the autobiography where actually some of the words he uses serve a double purpose. So one example is that he refers to himself a number of times as a talking animal. That's how people saw him as a talking animal. And that sounds like here's this very unrefined person, dirty, doesn't dress well, etc. But if you think about the term talking animal, he's actually playing on the medieval Hebrew translation of Aristotle's idea of the human being being a rational or speaking animal. The term there is uh, chai hamidaber. And so what he's doing is he's he's showing on the one hand, look, he, Maimon, according to these external standards of enlightenment, is unenlightened. But really, these these so-called enlighteners, they're really just ignorant. And what he writes about is how he is continually not accepted by non-Jewish society. But at the same time, he's continually not accepted by Jewish society because he won't conform. But nonetheless, he considers himself very much a Jew. He forms himself out of his Jewishness. His name, in fact, Solomon Maimon, is a made-up name. His real name was Solomon, son of Joshua. Later in life, he took this name, Solomon Maimon, clearly naming himself after the great medieval Jewish philosopher Moses Maimonides. And it's all about his self-fashioning, the self-fashioning of himself as a Jew.
0: So it's in this sense that I mean that he's the first modern Jewish individual. In some senses, then, with Mendelssohn, we have the very modern Jewish predicament because Judaism now is something volitional. It's something that one has to subscribe to. And with Maimon, we have someone who's quite literally in the form of a biography writing their own life and therefore constructing themselves as an individual. You're listening to Counterpoint, and I'm Jonathan Judakin. I'm speaking today with Leora Botnitsky, author of How Judaism Became a Religion, which is the topic of her public lecture at Rhodes College on Monday, September 30th at 6 p.m. And we're discussing some of the major figures who forged the idea of Judaism in the modern period. Leora, I want to explore as much as we can some of the people who were important in constructing some of the major denominations within Judaism with the time that we have left. Tell Tell us a little bit about the advent of Reform Judaism in particular and Geiger, who was the key figure behind the creation of Reform Judaism. How did this come out of Mendelssohn and the Enlightenment? What are the ways in which it was further shaping Judaism in this new modern way as a religion?
1: Well, Geiger, who is a 19th century figure, writes at a time and he acts at a time in which Jews have received some, not all, political rights. And so he has to answer the question that Mendelssohn left subsequent thinkers with, which is, why remain Jewish when you don't have to? And the origins of the Reform Movement were an attempt to save Judaism, to offer a compelling internal reason for remaining Jewish. So Geiger very much embraced the idea that Judaism's a religion. He said that Judaism's essence is its universal religious element. And he added to that that Judaism was not just a religion, but it was the religious genius that ushered in the monotheistic worldview into world history. On the one hand, he was very much conforming his idea of Judaism to a Protestant idea. Yet, at the same time, there was a subversive element that he was saying that not only is Judaism a religion like Protestantism, but in fact, all the ideas that Protestantism has about religion from specifically the prophets, for instance, they all came from Judaism. And in fact, Jesus was Jewish, he argued. He also wrote a book, by the way, on what Muhammad borrowed from Judaism. On the one hand, it was very much an apology stance. Judaism is a religion. It can fit into the modern nation state. On the other hand, he was very subversive. Now, Geiger's major idea and the major impetus behind Reform Judaism was to understand Judaism from a historical point of view. So what Geiger argued was that if you look at Jewish history, you'll see that over time, Jews had to develop all kinds of survival mechanisms like the law, and they needed it. But now that Jews lived at a time where they were citizens of a modern nation-state, they no longer needed the law. So part of what Jewish history was for Geiger was this progressive movement where Judaism's idea becomes purified in a new political environment. And in this German-Jewish political environment, he believed Judaism could be the religion it always was, and not just the religion it always was, but the religion that really was a light unto the nations for all other people, and specifically Protestants.
0: And part of what he did was to argue that many aspects of the law, in fact, were relics of a post and belonged in the post and therefore could be set aside. One of the people that he went to college with was Samuel Raphael Hirsch, who becomes the founder of modern orthodoxy and absolutely viscerally rejects this idea of the abandonment of the law Tell us a little bit about the way in which modern orthodoxy is in fact a response to reform Judaism. And even though it claims to carry forward in an unbroken tradition Jewish law, its response to law in fact was also very modern and new. Well, first, as a historical matter, Hirsch and what became
1: known as modern orthodoxy was simply a historical response to Geiger. In other words, some of what Geiger was doing came first. But I think on a deeper level, modern orthodoxy is modern because some of the ideas that are at the center of it are distinctly modern ideas. You wouldn't find them in pre-modern Jewish sources. So so let me give you a couple of examples. Well, first of all, Hirsch very much, of course, rejected Geiger's idea that Judaism was a religion defined in terms of this monotheistic worldview rather than law. And Hirsch argued, and this is the basis of modern orthodoxy, that the law is eternal. No matter what happens, historically, Jews will always be following Jewish law, obliged to follow Jewish law. And That's something that doesn't change. But what's interesting about that is that Hirsch actually made that argument not as a rejection of, say, Mendelssohn's basic premises, but really as an intensification. He argued in even stronger terms than Geiger did, by the way, stronger terms than Mendelssohn did, too, that the law or halacha had absolutely no relationship whatsoever to politics. And in fact, in his writings on Jewish communal life, he argues that Jewish law really is a matter of timeless principles that move and guide the Jew in every fiber of his heart and every stirring of his will. It's very individualistic. It's all about what is in the heart, and what is in the will. So that's the first way in which modern orthodoxy is quite modern, is in this shared idea with the reform movement and with Mendelssohn beforehand that the law is completely different from political life. Second of all, what Hirsch did is he is really the figure who created modern denominationalism. People often think that this began with the reform movement, that the reform movement created denominationalism, but actually Hirsch petitioned the Prussian government in 1876 to allow him to form a distinct Jewish community. And what was this Jewish community? This was a community of those that Hirsch called the genuine Jew, He didn't deny that non-Orthodox Jews were Jews because, of course, from a halachic perspective, one can't do that. From a halachic perspective, anyone who's born from a Jewish mother is Jewish. But nonetheless, Hirsch made this distinction between Jews and genuine Jews. And who are these genuine Jews? They're genuine Jews who are loyal to the law, who believe in the law, who believe that the law as it is today was given to Moses at Sinai. And so it's really this individualistic basis and also this idea that it's a matter of belief in the law that makes orthodoxy and Hirsch's version of it certainly extremely modern.
0: And so these splits between religion and politics between the private and the public end up also resulting in the splits into these different Jewish denominations. The third major denomination is conservatism. Tell us a little bit about how it fit into this discussion between reform and orthodoxy about the nature of the law as the basis of the third main denomination that emerges in the modern period.
1: What we call conservative Judaism today emerged in the mid-19th century from within reformist circles. More specifically, it emerges over arguments about the place of the Hebrew language in Jewish liturgy. The Reformers wanted to remove Hebrew language. They also wanted to make the Sabbath on the Sunday instead of the Saturday. And a number of figures who had been involved in that movement broke from that movement and instead formed what they called the Positive Historical School, today known as Conservative Judaism. So what is Conservative Judaism then? Reform Judaism, and Geiger in particular, he argued that Judaism was, as it developed over time, was passive. What he was trying to say was that Jewish law or halacha not only is it a relic of the past, but it also developed in circumstances in which Jews and Judaism were shaped by external historical events. Jews had to have their own kind of law and their own kind of communal organizations because of historical circumstances. The implication of this from the conservative point of view or from the positive historical point of view was that Jewish history was wholly passive, and that's wholly with a W. And what they argued, and this is where the term positive historical comes in, was that Jewish history history is not just merely passive it's not just merely a response to external events but it's active and so there are parts of jewish history such as law halakha that are part of the creative spirit of Judaism. And therefore, it should be preserved. Again, positive, historical. It's a historical argument, like the Reformers. Again, this is what Hirsch rejected. Law doesn't change for Hirsch. But the Reformers and the positive historical school agree that one must understand Judaism from a historical perspective. But where the positive historical school or conservative Judaism differed was in saying that... There are these elements of the Jewish past that are a product of Jewish creativity, and they really are what makes the tradition vital. So the law does change, but at the same time, the law remains a constant in Jewish life. So if you think of the Jewish Theological Seminary of America today, which is the inheritor of positive historical Judaism, their motto is tradition and change. So yes, things change, but there's always tradition, and there's a dialectic between the two.
0: And I think one of the things that's interesting is that you point out that all of these three major branches of modern Judaism, each of them claimed that they were the true Judaism, that they represented the true essence of what Judaism had always been. Leora, before we leave, I want to talk about one of the ways in which Judaism is rethought in the modern period against the idea of religion, and specifically the tradition of Zionism. You titled your chapter on Zionism, The Rejection of Jewish Religion and the Birth of Jewish Nationalism, which gives us your argument in shorthand. But give us a little bit of a sense of how Zionism rejects the idea of Judaism as a religion in articulating the idea that Judaism is really a form of nationalism.
1: Well, something that's very important today to keep in mind is that while lots of people think of Zionism as religious, Zionism, historically speaking, was very much an anti-religious movement. And so Zionism, historically speaking, rejected this idea that Judaism is a religion. Zionism claimed that part of the problem of Jewish history was that Jews were passively waiting for the Messiah to come before they returned to the land of Israel. And what Jews needed to do was to take matters into their own hands and actively create either a state or a settlement in the land of Israel or elsewhere, some of them argued elsewhere. So one way of understanding Zionism historically is to see that Zionism, of course, arose in response to growing anti-Semitism. One might have thought, as I think a number of Jewish thinkers did think, that with full equality that Jews would be accepted by the various states in which they lived. That didn't happen in Europe. Jews were increasingly subject to a new kind of hatred, of a kind of nationalistic anti-Semitism. And Zionism is a response to that. So Zionism rejects this idea that one can be a Jew in private as religion and then a member of a modern nation state in public. Zionists reject this idea on the basis of what they claim is historical reality. And so someone, the the sort of uh, founding father of the Zionist movement, though not the first Zionist thinker, Theodore Herzl famously claimed that he became a Zionist by reporting on the Dreyfus Affair in France in 1894. And Dreyfus, to make a long story short, he had been in the French military and had, had risen in the ranks. He was accused of treason. He was convicted with really no evidence against him. Mobs crowded the streets calling death to the Jews. And Herzl Claimed that witnessing this made him a Zionist. I should say as a side, a number of historians have argued that Herzl was a Zionist before this, but that's a that's a whole other issue. So this idea that Jews would not be accepted, that the promise of the modern nation states and the promise of making Judaism into a religion was a failure is the basis of Zionism historically speaking.
0: One of the things that you do is of course look at a number of the internal debates about the nature of Zionism. Herzl represented one branch, Achada Am, and other thinkers represented another. And that's really what you do throughout this book. We barely had the opportunity to touch on what it is that you explore here, but how Judaism became a religion really offers a very fulsome picture of the debates amongst the titans of Jewish thought and how they wrestled with all of these issues. Leora, thanks so much for giving us a sense of how Jewish thinkers debated about whether Judaism is a religion or a nation or a culture, and for being with us today on CounterPoint. Thank you for having me. Putting a spotlight on the role of scholars, academics, and intellectuals, and how their work illuminates the issues we face locally and globally, CounterPoint is a monthly broadcast on WKNO-FM. To listen to the show in its entirety, visit wknofm.org and click on the news menu item where you'll find a link to CounterPoint. You can podcast CounterPoint by visiting iTunes and searching for WKNO CounterPoint. Counterpoint is a production of WKNO-FM in association with the Spence L. Wilson Chair in Humanities at Rhodes College. Justin Willingham produces the show. I'm Jonathan Judakin. Thanks for listening.